Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's peanut butter cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's peanut butter cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's peanut butter cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's peanut butter cups now at a store near you found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh, hey, it's room temperature cheese, which you always forget is better than cold cheese. Allie Ward back with another episode of Ologies. You know, every week I worry, will I make a good enough episode for you? Am I going to bungle it? This one is a disaster, and I'm happy to report it's a disaster in the best way. Um, I'm going to get a few formalities out of the way up top. I want to thank the patrons at patreon.com for making this show possible for as little as a buck a month you can donate. Uh, thank you to everyone wearing Ologies merch from ologiesmerch.com. Thanks to everyone who tells a friend or a lover ooh, about the show and who rates it and subscribes to keep it up in the charts. And most importantly, perhaps reviews because you know on days when I'm eating peanut butter in a hotel room for dinner, I read them and I smell like a creep with a warm heart. Such as, for example, this one by Tumblr Mobile who says, not to be dramatic, but listening to Ologies has been helping me slowly climb out of the depressive funk I've been in for the past six months. Thank you, Dad Ward, for being curious and insightful. And sociopathy, hello to your inner curious science kid. From my inner curious science kid and the rest of the Ologites. So thank you for your reviews, everyone. I read them all. I read all of them. Proof. There you go. Okay. Disasterology. Let's get into it. This one has got to be made up, right? No, shut your mouth. How dare you? It's in fact a very real ology. And as it turns out, it's a pretty vital one. So this field of study was pioneered by Dr. Samuel Henry Prince, pretty much, after the 1917 disaster in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Whew, I just read about this, in which a French vessel full of gunpowder caught fire, exploded in a harbor, it leveled buildings for half a mile, sent a shockwave that instantly killed 1,600 people and injured nearly 1,000 more. 300 folks later died from their injuries. This was a catastrophe so huge, so tragic, it wiped out 22% of residents, including a neighboring Mi'kmaq community, which perished in the resulting tsunami caused by this blast. This was huge. So Dr. Sam Henry Prince, a sociologist, began studying why disasters happen, how to mitigate them, how to respond and recover. So 100 years later, and there are now whole research arms dedicated to these fields. And when I first heard that disasterology was a thing, I want to sit down and I want to talk to someone who, as their life's work, focuses on making death and chaos into prevention and recovery. So I googled disasterology. And the first 1 million results were about a San Diego pop punk band called Pierce the Veil and their song Disasterology, which seems to be 
from what I can surmise about getting wasted and having girls crawl out from under your bed. However, there is a very sweet, screechy refrain that goes, if it's the end of the world, you and me should spend the rest of it in love. And you know, it's not wholly inaccurate. I thought this episode would focus on ear-splitting havoc, discomforts, like a Pierce the Veil song, but really it left me with a faith in humanity and love and neurobiology. So this ologist you're about to meet has a BS in psychology and an MS and a PhD in emergency management from North Dakota State University. She is an assistant professor of emergency management and disaster science at University of Nebraska, Omaha. Y'all, her website is disasterology, disaster-ology.com. She has the domain name. I had to meet her. So on a rainy April afternoon, I traveled thousands of miles from home to meet her on campus at North Dakota State University, and we pulled up a few chairs and dug into what is a disaster, what is a catastrophe, what risks do responders take? What are some of the worst historical disasters? What can we do to protect ourselves? Do doomsday preppers know what's up? Which disaster movies suck the most? Should we be afraid of the big one? Should you donate money or get your ass down to a hazard zone? How much looting happens when the shit hits the fan? And why keeping calm is one of the safest things you can do. So bat down the hatches, get cozy in the cellar for emergency management professor and professional disasterologist, Dr. Samantha Montano. Of all the, of all the episodes, <laughs> I, I feel like this is going to be yeah. the hardest one to pick because you're like, oh yeah, there's, there's some charities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> When I found out you were in North Dakota, I was like, oh, I'm coming for you. <laughs> um, and now, how long have you been a disasterologist? Uh, well, it depends on how you define disasterologist. I've had my doctoral degree in emergency management for two years now. Mm -hmm. um, and then before that, I was in grad school for five years, and I did four years of disaster-related work before that. What does disaster-related work entail? So um, I got my start in disasters right after Hurricane Katrina and the levee failure in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I was in high school at the time. So side note, this was in August of 2005, and Hurricane Katrina was a Category 5 storm that hit Florida and Louisiana. So New Orleans, which sits below sea level, was protected by miles of levees and flood walls in which over 50 breaches and major leaks occurred, leaving 80% of the city flooded after the hurricane. So over 1,800 lives were lost. Sam, who's originally from Portland, Maine, went to New Orleans in the aftermath. And I, there was like a group from my high school going down to New Orleans to help gut homes and rebuild. And so I went uh, on that trip to volunteer for a week and... I kind of just got what we call the disaster bug, and so I ended up moving to New Orleans when I graduated, and I lived there for four years doing all different kinds of recovery work with different nonprofits in the city, 
And then it kind of just spiraled from there while I was there. The BP oil disaster happened along the coast. And so I did some work with that in different organizations. Then I took a group of volunteers to Joplin, Missouri after their tornado. And it just kind of kept going until I went to grad school. And when you say that you got the disaster bug, as they say, you're not the only person who calls it the disaster bug? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know who started that, but it's definitely a saying, particularly among like practitioners and people who do a lot of volunteering during and after disasters. What is the disaster bug? Um, it's just kind of this, uh, I don't know, it's like this, like draw, you're like being drawn towards disasters when they happen. I think you just notice them more frequently, you... Especially when you are going to a disaster during the actual response and into like the very early days of recovery, it's like this very kind of unique feeling within a community that's going through that. Um, and so getting the disaster bug is kind of like, like it, not liking that feeling, but kind of being drawn towards that. Okay, side note. I couldn't find the exact origin or first usage of this phrase, but it's definitely in parlance in the disaster community. So in one 2017 disasterology workshop titled Preparing for the Future of Disaster Health Volunteerism, Sean Casey, who's an acting director of an emergency response unit, said that many volunteers, quote, get the bug to complete more disaster response deployments. This did not satisfy me, though. So like a woodland creature, I decided to burrow into Google, screaming, why? But why the bug? Into an ever deeper trench. And I found the research of UCLA social psychologist Dr. Shelley E. Taylor, who for decades has studied the role of the hormone oxytocin in stress response. And she theorizes that oxytocin leads us to, quote, tend and befriend in times of chaos or disaster. So the disaster bug, it is a thing, and it may also be chemical. Is there something about the unity that happens after a big event like that? Yeah, so Rebecca Solnit has written an entire book about this, actually. It's called A Paradise Built in Hell. Mm -hmm. And that's basically the title of that book is what is kind of describing that feeling that a community goes through. It's like this paradise because there is this sense of unity. And um, despite what Hollywood movies tell us about disasters, um, people are actually really pro-social and come together when disasters happen. And so there's like this sense of unity within the community that kind of feels like a bit of a paradise. But then, of course, there's this disaster happening around you. And so that is the hell that this paradise is happening within. Mm -hmm. Were you ever struck by that Mr. Rogers quote? <laughs> yeah, the one about the helpers. Yeah. Always look for the helpers. There, were, there will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. That's why I think that if news programs could make a conscious effort of showing rescue teams, of, of showing who, uh, medical people, anybody who is coming into a place where there's a tragedy, to be, to be sure that they include that. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Yeah, um, it's really interesting. I think about that quote a lot 
whenever a disaster happens and it's shared around, I mean, that's where that like quote comes from is that no matter how bad a situation is, there's always people there that are helping in various ways. And so that's kind of what your work entails is, is helping and figuring out how to mobilize people to help more. Yeah, exactly. So um, within the world of disasters, the part that I study is emergency management. So it's how we actually manage the disasters. Like, how do we make sure that the right people are in the right places at the right time? How do we do things to prevent disasters from happening in the first place? What do we need to do ahead of time to make sure response and recovery to disasters goes well? How do we get communities recovered as quickly as possible? How do you define disaster? And how do you define your role as a disasterologist? I know you weren't the first person to necessarily utter the phrase, but maybe the first to take ownership of it since like the 1850s or something. Um, So there is, (laughs) this is shocking, but there technically is not a consensus on a definition of disaster. What? Why not? There's like some different ones out there that people are kind of drawn to. When I explain it, I think the easiest way to think about it is that it is when a hazard, meaning something that poses a threat to us, interacts with us, our communities, the things we care about, to the point that we are overwhelmed. And so at that point, that hazard has become a hazard event. Uh, And then hazard events kind of fall along this spectrum is one way to think about it. So you have emergencies on the low end, disasters in the middle, and catastrophes on the high end. So it kind of fades up like an ombre of horrors. And so in emergency management, we study all three. Um, But yeah, they, they kind of fall along this spectrum. So a catastrophe is worse than a disaster. Yes. So it's funny because we think of those words only in hyperbole of like, I got yeah. a latte. <laughs> it was a catastrophe. <laughs> How do you feel about the show Catastrophe? Are you like, calm down? <laughs> Quick aside, I love the show Catastrophe. It is wonderful. No, it's fine. Words have different meanings in different contexts. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's fine. As long as you know they're hyperbolic. Right. I have called my hair a disaster so many times in my apartment a disaster so many times and it's a little different. And so when it comes to your role from a professional sense, how do you get a degree in it? How is that even structured? How are you teaching it? What's the what's the academic uh, aspect of it like? Sure. So I did not know anything about emergency management. I did not know it was something you could get a degree in at all. Samantha did her undergrad at Loyola University in New Orleans, and one of her professors had gone to the University of Delaware, which is home to the Disaster Research Center. This is a real place, the Disaster Research Center. And so when I demonstrated this interest in disasters, she recommended that I look into grad school as an option. And so I started looking into emergency management programs for my master's degree. And there are, at that time, there was, you know, a a bunch around the country of kind of varying quality. And so I kind of just picked what I thought were the top three and applied to them. And then I went with the one that gave me the most money, which was (laughs) NDSU. (laughs) And that is how I ended up in Fargo, North Dakota. (laughs) Uh, 
a lot of disasters come through here? Tornadoes? Uh, yeah, we do have a tornado risk, but mostly it's the flooding from the Red River. Oh my gosh. So when it comes to disasters, what are some of the most common ones that start as hazards and end up disasters? So flooding is the most common one, for really? sure, around the world. Yep. Really? I didn't realize that. So quick aside, how many floods happen a year? What are we talking? So I live in a place where you have to remember to water a cactus. So I looked it up, and a weather.com article from 2018 was titled, Not at all, Rosalie, A Concerning Trend. Flooding deaths have increased in the U.S. the last few years. And it said the average number of flood deaths used to be 86. This is for the last several decades. And then it jumped to 95 flooding deaths a year in the last 10 years, and then over 100 deaths a year in the past few years. So like floodwaters, it's on the rise. Now in India, right now, just this very monsoon season, 1.2 million people have been displaced and evacuated with over 200 casualties. So anyway, floods, not a good scene. And what can be done about that? So there are a lot of things. Um, So this is one of the key things we do in emergency management is look at what is what are the factors that are actually leading to this disaster happening? Um, because once you identify those factors, then you can start to try to do something about those factors. Um, so in terms of flooding, there is a ton that we can do. Um, some of those things are related to kind of addressing the hazard itself. So um, mitigating climate change itself is going to pull back on some of that hazard risk. Uh, in terms of flooding in various ways. So that is like one way you can drive at the cause of disaster. So just like fix climate change, easy peasy. But on an individual level, if you live somewhere that's, say, prone to flooding, you can raise your house, Samantha says, you can put up a flood wall or otherwise modify your own property. You could also go to Craigslist, buy a helicopter and park it on your roof. P.S. I just looked up how much does a helicopter cost? And it's about half a million dollars. But if you don't mind a single seater without doors that looks like it's made out of plastic, you can find them on AeroTrader for less than a used Audi would cost. You probably need to take a how to fly a chopper class first, though. It's probably like harder than a stick shift, but I'm not a doctor. And then also we can do things at a community level. So um, obviously communities build levees, build other kind of like bigger infrastructure projects. Um, There's kind of a push now back more towards more natural types of mitigation, like, um, you know, revitalizing wetlands and whatnot. You can do home buyouts. That's something we've done in Fargo along the river where you buy out people's homes and then turn that back into green space or a park or something so that when it does flood, it's not too big of a deal and doesn't cause too much damage. So yeah, lots of different things you can do. And what was your experience like uh, in the aftermath of of Katrina? I know that is a huge question. (laughs) Sure. How would you quantify that? Because if it was a hurricane caused a flood, yeah, how do you? Yeah, so uh, when you go to New Orleans and you mention Katrina, you'll hear New Orleanians say something along the lines of Hurricane Katrina and the levee failure. Mm. Um, And what they are 
getting at there is that, yes, there was a hurricane. That was the like initial trigger of everything that happened. But it was that hurricane interacting with a levee system that hadn't been maintained that and not maintained and not built correctly that led to the actual flood of the city. Mm-hmm. So this also gets at this other um, kind of common myth in the disaster world. We have this term natural disaster that we use all the time. Um, but really, disasters aren't natural. They're caused by decisions that we make and how we build and where we live, the policies that we have that are driving these things. And so we can have natural hazards, right? The hurricane itself may be natural. The tornado itself is natural. But that that point where it interacts with us, then it becomes, you know, our, we're involved in that now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of, if you look back at the way we've thought about disasters in the past, like, Way back, we think about them as acts of God. Then we switch more to this idea of natural disasters, still removing human responsibility from those disasters that have happened. Um, And so now there's this push among disaster researchers and others to kind of like pull back on that and acknowledge our our role in causing those disasters. In that it wasn't planned for properly which then, I guess, would switch the hand to having more control in the future of, of how bad they are. Yeah, exactly. How bad the impact is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever, did, were you ever raised with Sunday school, like Noah's Ark and the notion of <laughs> floods? Like, was that something that stuck with no, you? No, I wasn't. We weren't religious growing up. But mm-hmm. people often joke that Noah was the first emergency manager. <laughs> so a huge vessel on the high seas, wherein you are expected to bone a lot. So Noah, he was also the world's first cruise ship captain. When it comes to your work, how much of it is distributing water and getting places for people to stay, and how much of it is on the front end where you're trying to enact policy change and make sure that people are better prepared? Uh, so in the U.S., the way that like generally we deal with disasters is that we're really reactive. So we wait until a disaster happens and then we're reacting to it. Mm-hmm. That's not good. We need to be proactive. <laughs> we need to be doing things ahead of time. Okay, get ready for a list of four things. This is the base of disasterology, the order through the chaos. So this might help. We split disasters up into four phases. So you have mitigation where you're doing things to prevent disasters from happening. You have preparedness where you're doing things to get ready to deal with the response and recovery. Then you have response, which is that like 72 hours where you're doing life-saving tasks. That's probably like what you think of when you hear about disasters. And then there's the recovery process, which, depending on the situation, can go on for months, years, decades. So mitigation, preparedness, response, and recovery. So um, in emergency management, we deal in all four phases, and obviously that is a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, So it kind of depends on what community you're working in and like what the situation is. Uh, But emergency managers are doing a lot of their work in preparedness. They're writing plans. They are um, doing initiatives to help uh, individuals in the community prepare for disaster, right? They're doing all of those, like, getting themselves ready for response and recovery. 
um, the actual like distribution of water and getting people into shelters, all of that happens in this very small window of time. Again, like 72 hours, sometimes a week, sometimes a little bit longer, and then you move on into recovery. Mm-hmm. Were you always very helpful as a kid? Were you always, how many siblings do you have? I have, I'm the oldest of four. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> and I'm much older than them. So yes. <laughs> Were you always putting out figurative fires and? <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is it, does it, has it always kind of been in your nature to, to help out when you can? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, side note, is this an isolated incident or do firstborns get more shit done and just like helping people? I read up on one study done of men in the Swedish military and researcher Dr. Sandra E. Black was looking into if birth order had an impact on non-cognitive abilities like leadership skills. And she writes in one article about it, higher scores were assigned to those subjects considered emotionally stable, persistent, socially outgoing, willing to assume responsibility, and able to take initiative. She crunched the numbers. Later-born children had systematically lower scores on all of those attributes. Now, first-born children tend to have jobs that require more sociability, leadership ability, conscientiousness, agreeableness, emotional stability, extroversion, and openness. So first-born kids tend to have important jobs like CEOs and lawmakers and politicians. What's Dr. Sandra E. Black's stake in the game, you wonder? Oh, she's a firstborn. Hmm. Huh. So I will now be pursuing my PhD on the thesis, so what if I'm the last born? Maybe I was too busy getting dunked on and being tricked into giving my toys away when my sisters lied to me, so I became the family buffoon to escape persecution, and that is why I work from pajamas writing content about lizard dicks, okay? Girls like swarms of lizards, right? What is it like when you're... I think when people think about disaster recovery, they do think of that that small window of time when you're on the ground and you're you're seeing things and you're you're helping out. Um, do you find that some people think that they're cut out maybe for this work and it's just too difficult or too emotional for them? Um, maybe. Um, I think going back to that disaster bug thing, I think that people who like say they've caught the disaster bug are the people who are cut out for it. So I guess there is something about it that some people seem to be more capable of handling for extended periods of time. Going back to recovery, Samantha, remember, spent undergrad in Louisiana after Katrina and the floods, and this was a massive catastrophe. Again, 80% of the city flooded. Human bodies floated in the floodwaters for days at a time. Infrastructure was out all over. People left and never came back. So for this episode, I went back and looked up some AP photos of the direct aftermath, and I literally cried over my laptop and then had nightmares. The scale of this tragedy was unthinkable. So what was her experience like there? So when I lived in New Orleans, I lived there for four years. I was going to college. So in some ways, I was mostly living on campus in uptown New Orleans, Um, you know, you could walk around outside and not really know that Katrina had happened in the past few years. Um, There were like some signs here and there, but for the most part, things looked quote unquote normal. But because of the organizations I worked with and the other things that I did, I was regularly spending time in all different neighborhoods throughout the entire city. And, you know, (laughs) 
when you live in a place that is going through a recovery, especially of the size of Katrina's recovery, it affects kind of every aspect of your day from, you know, certain roads being closed down because they're still doing construction on those roads or fixing the sewer lines for the first time since the storm, like years later, or, you know, trash and recycling not being back or it being two to three years before the streetcar starts running again, right? Every different aspect of the city had to be rebuilt. And so you're operating within this space that is not operating at its full capacity. And so that kind of like that eats at you, that affects your daily life. And even I, who was very much still removed from that, like I myself was not going through a recovery. I myself was like living in like a place that was recovered. And even then, when I left New Orleans, I like felt the difference of moving to Fargo and being in a community that was all put together and mm-hmm. operating the way you expect a community to operate. And so, yeah, it definitely eats at you. We also see that in the research in terms of, you know, people's mental health and the way that stress manifests during recovery. We see an increase in domestic violence, an increase in suicides during recovery among people who are going through that process. And yeah, it's extremely, extremely difficult to go through, particularly as a survivor of that disaster. Does it ever affect you to see how people respond to certain disasters as opposed to others or how policymakers or political officials will respond to certain communities affected or certain disasters? Is that ever something that might get your goat? Yeah, I'm mad like all the time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's what I think you Just constantly mad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just a side note. So we recorded this in late April. The world had just watched France's structural jewel, Notre Dame Cathedral, burn in part to cinders and collapse. Over $1 billion in donations poured out of pockets. And the church reported that most of it was from small personal donations. So, okay, they raised a billion dollars very quickly. Fine. It's Europe. There are so many countries that would chip in. But I just read a recent travel and leisure article that noted... An estimated 90% of the donations didn't come from Europe. They came from the U.S. So what about Puerto Rico, hobbled by Hurricane Maria? They got less help from the U.S. federal government than Texas and Florida did for Hurricanes Harvey and Irma. And as for personal donations, folks gave about $32 million to Puerto Rico as compared to that $1 billion for a Paris church. Hurricane Maria's death toll in Puerto Rico which is a U.S. territory, is estimated at 3,057 people. So the death toll for the Notre Dame fire? Zero. Huge financial discrepancies there. Certainly, everything about disasters is injustice manifesting. Um, Like, who is affected most directly by disasters, which communities are affected, in what ways they're affected, their ability to prepare for disasters, their ability to mitigate disasters, their ability to recover, their ability to literally survive disasters. All of this is tied to policies that are shaped by race, class, gender, and all of those inequalities come out in the middle of a disaster. And, you know, it's those inequalities exist in all four phases, but of course it's during the response that they are kind of most visible and in everyone's face. Mm-hmm. Kanye West 
sometimes just calling them out on a telethon. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Back vintage Kanye West, that is. Yeah. The golden days of Yeezy, before red hats and proclamations that slavery is a choice. So next time someone gets unhinged on Twitter and pisses off huge swaths of the nation, you can ponder academically. Is this a PR emergency, PR disaster, or a PR catastrophe? And so when it comes to disasters, say, coming up versus how they were 10, 12, 20 years ago, I mean, not to use the forecast, the word forecast too on the nose, but are we looking at more disasters and yes. less preparedness? So we're, we're definitely looking at more disasters if we are continue on the trajectory that we're headed um, based on a couple of factors. So one, climate change. Two, uh, the number of people and where they are living. And three, the way we're building. Um, those are the three kind of big factors that are going to be driving that increase in disasters. So it's a little bit difficult to tell, but generally that's the trajectory that we're on for sure. Let's touch on a few historical disasters, shall we? So I started my understanding of disasters probably back like mid-1800s, like Great Chicago Fire, then going to like the Galveston Hurricane of 1900, the San Francisco Earthquake and Fire in 1906, Mississippi River Flood of 1927, the Dust Bowl, and then kind of back up into more modern disasters. How is How have disasters changed since ye old disasters, as we might call them? Well, a lot of things have changed. Uh, the first thing that's changed is the actual hazards that we have to deal with. So now we have um, more technological disasters, more like human-made oil spills, chemical spills, uh, type of disasters. What we've also changed the way that we build, like the things that we have in our community are just worth more now. Um, and they're more complicated to put back together uh, after a disaster happens, like putting the electric grid back together in Puerto Rico, right? Like those types of things are more complicated and it takes longer. So what's changed in the last 150 years isn't just better architecture, technology, communication, transportation, like soap, but also an increase in government involvement, Samantha says. But we have FEMA now. Um, FEMA wasn't created until the 1970s. There were some offices that were a precursor to FEMA. And what happens when, say, FEMA gets on the ground of a disaster? What type of organization is most effective in getting people help? What's the triage method and where do they start to assess and act on things? The response begins before FEMA gets there. So the first responders to any disaster are the people who are in that community. So the survivors themselves, um, the like traditional first responders, police, fire, etc. They're first there. The local emergency managers, uh, state level agencies and offices are all there. And then the federal government comes in. So you might recall photos of the Katrina response. There were houses drifted from their foundations, apartments still standing, and really lovely historical downtown architecture bore not only stains from flood water, but also spray-painted X's 
surrounded by numbers and codes. And these X's were kind of crudely slashed on thousands and thousands of house exteriors. And they looked ominous, almost biblical. But you know, instead of lamb's blood, it's just orange spray paint. And these X's served as warnings and a heads up to other disaster relief workers. So upon entering to check out the building, one slash was made. And then after searching the property for survivors, the other slash was done completing the X. So in the top quadrant was the date the structure was searched. And the western quarter notes who searched the property. And the right or the eastern quadrant noted what hazards like rats or structural instability was happening. And then the bottom section noted the number of living or dead found inside. 0L0DB means the place was empty. Zero living, zero dead bodies. That number wasn't always zero though. So many survivors of Katrina kept the X markings that were on their homes, even after they repaired all around it. And others had iron sculpture replicas made to endure and memorialize the event after the paint faded. Others kept that memory alive in the form of tattoos, like that hurried spray-painted X was transferred from their houses onto their skin via needle to take to the grave. I just, you look at that and It is incomprehensible sometimes to think of how much chaos, how much heartache, how much loss, how much just um, disbelief and denial people must be in from a grief standpoint, and then to try to figure out where do we put people, what's safest, how many people are in this house. I mean, how do you even begin to tackle that? So first of all, communities have plans in place ahead of time. They're not always great plans, but they have them. And anybody who's been involved in creating those plans theoretically knows what those plans are. There is a system that we use nationally to help try to organize and coordinate. And there is like a national framework for who is like which major agencies are in charge of different areas like sheltering versus um, search and rescue. Uh, So there is some breakdown in that sense. And Also, once we're talking about the big disasters here and you have that national involvement, you also have agencies and people that have worked together before on disasters. And so they have more familiarity with each other and they're bringing all their experience of past disasters um, into their response. So there's FEMA, but also more grassroots efforts, Samantha explains. So what happens during disasters is that People look around and they see that help is needed and they work together to address those needs. Um, And so sometimes these emergent groups are like little search and rescue groups in a neighborhood that start going around knocking on doors to check on people. Sometimes it is a group of people getting together to open a shelter in a church that they weren't expecting to have to do, but there's a need for it, so they do it. Um, We also have... Uh, this convergence of people from outside of the impacted area coming in. Um, Like within that convergence, you have volunteers coming from the outside area to kind of back up the survivors and help them address the needs. And so when a disaster happens, you have this formal system that's operating under this like plan and like procedures that they've thought through. And then you have this informal system doing whatever they think needs to happen in the moment. 
And that can be very frustrating, as you can imagine, for those in the formal system. Mm -hmm. I am more sympathetic to the informal system. Mm -hmm. I think they're great. Uh Um, They are really flexible because they don't have any rules or procedures that they're really following, right? They're really flexible and can meet whatever the needs are in that moment. Um, And so when you look at a disaster that's happening, and if you're having a sense from the media that a response isn't going well. Sometimes what's happening is that there's been some kind of breakdown in that formal system uh, and where people's needs are still being met, it's happening through the informal system. So sometimes these big systems get the attention while the more grassroots efforts pick up the slack. One of the key things about Puerto Rico is that because Puerto Rico is in fact an island, Mm -hmm. the convergence from outside wasn't able to happen as quickly as it was able to in Texas during Harvey or in Florida during Irma or North and South Carolina during Florence. Um, It just took longer for people from the outside to be able to get in. And so in Puerto Rico, you saw this kind of breakdown in the formal system, but you also saw a breakdown in the informal system, which is less usual. And that helped contribute to kind of what people were seeing as they watched Puerto Rico unfold. And one of the reasons why it was so bad in terms of the response. I mean, if only they had more paper towels. They had these beautiful soft towels, very good towels. Puerto Rico had like almost everything working against them mm-hmm. once Maria formed. Um, they already were vulnerable in terms of the infrastructure on the island and the fact that they are more isolated than someplace like Houston. Um, then you had the added issue of the emergency management system already having been strained at that point. Harvey and Irma had both just happened. And I mean, those were major disasters that took, you know, attention from everybody. And so by the time we got to Maria, everybody was tired. People were already deployed. Resources were already used up. Um, And then you add another layer of government dysfunction at multiple levels and like, at a, at a hurricane and you have what happened in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. What happens when the president gets in his helicopter, whatever, surveys something, scratches his chin, and declares it an emergency? Like, there's always that moment where they've, de- they've declared it an emergency. And you're like, okay, that must mean some paperwork gets shuffled differently. Uh, that's actually a really important thing to have happen. Mm-hmm. So um, the way that you kind of get FEMA involved and the, get the federal government involved more broadly in a disaster is that it has to be a presidentially declared disaster. So the governor of the state has to declare an emergency, and then they uh, go through a process with FEMA of asking the White House to declare it a presidential disaster. So once the president signs that, FEMA and the rest of the federal government can become involved and start supporting that specific disaster. It has really, really important implications for recovery specifically. In order to get individual assistance, like a homeowner get individual assistance from FEMA post-disaster, you have to be in a county 
that received a presidential disaster declaration and has had individual met the like threshold for all of those programs being opened through FEMA. Mm-hmm. And I noticed you use the word survivors. I haven't heard you use the word victim, which seems deliberate. <laughs> and I imagine is. there's a reason. <laughs> sure. So uh, oftentimes we hear survivors described as victims. Um, I tend to use the word victims to describe the people who have died in the disaster mm-hmm. and use survivors for those who have survived. Um, it varies. If I'm like talking to somebody who has been through a disaster, I use the word that they use. So if they're calling themselves the victim, then I go with that. Um, but generally, I prefer survivors, one, so that you can have that s- distinction between victim and survivor, but also in the way that it is empowering, I suppose. It seems to also pay some respect to the people who lost their lives as well. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people hear about disasters more in terms of the millions of dollars of property damage or how much it will cost to rebuild, but maybe don't always remember the number of of lives lost. Um, Is that in part of your work something that you try to shine a light on at all, or is that something that you feel should be considered? Yeah, certainly it's something to know and to be considered. I think Talking about disaster deaths can be really complicated. This is another thing that kind of came to light for the public during Maria is who counts as having their death attributed to a disaster and who doesn't. Um, There's some like legal and financial implications that are tied to that. But then there's also like who gets to decide if a death is attributed to that disaster or not because we know disasters are so complicated, right? And disasters, to me, aren't just that moment of impact. The disaster is the whole thing, all, like, through recovery. Like, mm-hmm. that's all still, the disaster is still happening. It's just manifesting in a different way. And so to say that somebody who has died from literally drowning in floodwaters their death is obviously attributable to that disaster. But then to me, somebody who has died of a heart attack from being so stressed out about the recovery process a week later, I I mean, that death is just as attributable to that disaster, in my opinion. Right. <laughs> um, but again, there's this like complicated legal situation that is going on. But yeah, we're not good at counting disaster deaths. It's really complicated. Some of it is like a logistics issue of, this is like morbid, but like going to find bodies and like being able to actually like figure out who is missing. Of course, when you look back at certain disasters, you can see who in a community isn't counted among disaster deaths and who is. And so it's all just really complicated. And I understand that statistics for heart attacks after an earthquake, say, spike a few days later. Is that something that disasterologists look at or in health statistics like that? Yeah, uh, certainly there are some researchers who look at that. Um, those would be under the heading of like indirect disaster deaths mm-hmm. if they're counted at all. 
Okay, so quick aside, I remember years ago seeing an article about heart attack deaths after LA's 1994 Northridge earthquake, and I went and found it. So the county coroner found a five-fold increase in heart attack deaths the day of the earthquake, and a week later, the heart attack levels sunk back down to normal. And in an area like New Orleans, with this catastrophe like Katrina and the floods, the recovery process itself can be so stressful that Tulane researchers found an uptick of heart attacks a full decade after the event. And in Japan, after the 2011 earthquake and tsunami, there was an increase in heart attack and stroke deaths for a solid month. And for two weeks after Hurricane Sandy in 2012, the areas of New Jersey that were most impacted saw a 22% increase in cardiac-related deaths. So given that these casualties aren't always attributed to the disaster itself, counts are likely underreported. And just reading about this is wrenching. And what do you think people can do when we're watching the news and we're seeing long lines of people waiting to get clean water and people who have been displaced and families that are sleeping in gyms? And what can a person do? I know you mentioned a lot of people kind of descend on the area, but, you know, through your work, I've I've read also that that can displace people who need a place to sleep because there's all these kind of volunteers that now need a place to sleep. So what can we do when we're seeing this to to help? Um, so there are a lot of things that you can do to help. It kind of depends on when it is in relation to the disaster and kind of where you are in relation to the disaster. So if the disaster has happened in your community and you see an opportunity to go volunteer and you can get there safely and you're not in anybody's way and you're helping, um, then that is something that you can do. Uh, If you are away from the disaster when it happens, um, I usually recommend not going there right away. I recommend usually waiting more for the recovery um, and kind of let that immediate crisis subside before adding yourself to (laughs) that situation. But you can donate money if you're able to. Uh, There are a lot of great national disaster organizations, but then there are also a lot of local nonprofits from that community that are going to be involved in the response and recovery for probably a longer period of time than those bigger national organizations. And so it does take some effort and some Googling, but usually you can find some of those local nonprofits. And usually any that are working in the community are going to be involved in some way if it's a major disaster. And then if you do really want to go volunteer and you're from further away, then there are usually opportunities to go volunteer during the recovery. Um, Again, mostly through those national disaster organizations. And how do you feel about the way some disasters get covered on the news? Do you feel like it's good to expose them or are you like, oh, you're showing the absolute worst part on a loop? to get ratings? So it's complicated. It is certainly frustrating at times to see, you know, the classic weatherman like standing in the ocean as a hurricane is coming, right? That's frustrating. This is about as nasty as it's been. Uh, This is as bad as it will get. This thing is like pounding us from behind. But at the same time, the media is a vital component of our like overall emergency management system. They're providing life-saving information to the people who need it. They're sending out 
warnings. They're um, disseminating information about evacuations. They're telling people where they can go to get help. Samantha says that the news media is also amplifying organizations collecting donations and they're shining a light on how their response is going and if governmental organizations are doing what they can. However, so the media loves to cover a disaster during the response and then they go away. Mm -hmm. Um, And so local news outlets will obviously keep covering the recovery, but our local news media has taken a hit. And so um, we really need those national news outlets to be covering those recoveries into the long term. And it's difficult for them to do and it's difficult to capture people's interests and attention but it is so important because as a recovery goes on for years and years and years that community needs money they need that political pressure to again hold government accountable for you know giving the money that they've said that they're going to give and to do the projects that they've said they're going to do and when you're teaching what are your courses uh focused on how Where do you even begin to look at this? Um, So for our undergrads, um, they start out with like an intro to disaster class uh, where we just kind of give an overview of everything. And then they take one class for each of the four phases, recovery, response, preparedness, and mitigation. They take like a social vulnerability class. They take a planning class. They take international emergency management. So all different classes. How do you yourself kind of keep mentally healthy despite maybe seeing some stuff that is difficult? Well, I compartmentalize. Okay. (laughs) I don't necessarily know that that's a healthy approach, but that's what we've been doing. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You just shut that off, put a little box. Yep. Mm -hmm. We'll just have to deal with that later. The fire Festival doc, did you see it? I did. about to go to fire Festival. Could be amazing. Could be a disaster. Island getaway turned disaster. Nightmare in paradise. There was no music. They were put into disaster relief tents. How'd you feel about the FEMA tents? Man, what a nightmare. <laughs> so, yeah. I, uh, I saw a picture of the tents. I Maybe it was even before the documentaries came out. I don't oh, know, yeah. but I saw them and I was like... Gosh, this looks so familiar to me. Where have I seen those before? And I, all of a sudden, I realized, and I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> when I watched that documentary, I was like, there must be people in emergency management just losing yeah. their shit right now. <laughs> I mean, huh. Wild. I know. Why? What a yeah. what a vacay. What a, yeah. what a beach safari. Disaster, yeah. I know. <laughs> Seriously. Um. Disaster movies. Yes. Let's talk about them. You got a favorite? Um, let me start by saying this. I hate all Hollywood disaster movies. The one disaster movie that I like is Beasts of the Southern Wild. It's not perfect. There mm-hmm. are some issues. But I think that's the best one. You think it's the most well done? Yes. Okay. Side note, I have not yet seen Beasts of the Southern Wild, but according to the YouTube link for the trailer. It's set in a forgotten but defiant bayou community cut off from the rest of the world by a sprawling levee. A six-year-old girl named Hush Puppy's life is changed by a fierce storm, and this tiny hero must learn to survive unstoppable catastrophes of epic proportions. So now I very much want to watch it. But there's one disaster movie I watched in the theater with two of my girlfriends while drinking concession stand white wine, and I don't need to see that one again. 
So you haven't seen like San Andreas with the rock? Oh, I mean, I've seen them. <laughs> I hate watch them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you see San Andreas with the rock? Yes, I did. We're gonna make it. We're gonna make it. I was just like, is he surfing on a tidal wave? Like. <laughs> Why is there an American flag at the end? It was, yeah, it's pretty bad. That's wild. Um, what do Hollywood disaster movies get wrong other than everything? So uh, probably the biggest issue is that they perpetuate what we call the disaster myths. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are a series of myths about human behavior that will not go away. Boy, howdy. Buckle up for flim flam. And... Hollywood movies perpetuate them. So um, there is this myth that people panic during disaster, that it's like mass chaos and everybody's running around not knowing what to do, when in fact people actually are quite calm. They make rational decisions based on the information that they have gathered around them. They help one another. They're pro-social, going back to that paradise built in hell idea, and that they all work together together. Related to this is like this myth that there's rampant looting during disasters. Stores looted, people stampeded. Not, does not happen. Research is like very clear on this. Um, And so all of those Hollywood disaster movies, everybody's looting, everybody's running around panicked, freaking out. Um, And so, yeah, that's the... But there's usually um, a white heterosexual male that fixes things, so... (laughs) Yes, of course. And then he always gets late at the end. It's amazing. Now, what do you do or how do you approach people who won't leave their houses? And I'm talking about my parents specifically. (laughs) Nancy, Larry. My parents are very smart, but also stubborn. And historically, it had been hard to get them to leave when a storm was headed their way. How do you... How do you approach those? How do you get people to leave for their own safety? Sure. Um, So couple different issues here depending on the situation. The first is if they are like physically, financial, et cetera, able to actually leave. Um, once you've addressed like all of those issues and it's just somebody being stubborn, mm-hmm. um, I my go-to is to tell them to write their social security number on their arm in permanent marker so their body can be identified. Oh. Yeah. It's tough, but hey. That's a good one. Yeah. What happens when you tell people that? Are they like, okay, I'm coming? Uh, yeah, there you you get a reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Is that smart to do in any emergency just in case? To write your number? Yeah. Um, I mean, you could. You could. I don't know. Can't hurt. <laughs> sure. And let's talk about what's in your trunk. Does your car have an emergency kit in it? Are you the most prepared person ever? Or are you like, when it comes, it comes? I am embarrassingly unprepared most of the time. Really? You don't have like a month's supply of water in your trunk and a flare? No, certainly not. Well, it depends on where I am at any given moment. Like, technically you're supposed to have like a preparedness kit in your office. (laughs) not have that at all. Um, I mean, I have like a preparedness kit at home, but I don't pay a ton of attention to it, which is a problem. That's bad. You okay. should do that. I am like setting a very bad example. I learned it by watching you. The thing is, it really depends on your situation. So um, I, so just 
The fact of like having a preparedness kit does not necessarily mean that you are prepared for a disaster. Like there are some things in there that could be useful to you when a disaster happens. But preparedness is much, much more than that. It's also your social network and your like knowledge of disasters and hazards and that your local knowledge of your community. All of those things are kind of just as important in different ways uh, for actually having like the physical items stockpiled in your house. So again, you should like absolutely have a three-day supply of water in your house, which I do. Mm -hmm. Um, But, um, you know, preparedness is more than just that. Do you ever watch Doomsday Preppers? Yes, I have. Are, do you watch it like you guys know what's up or do you watch it and you say, you've wasted so much dehydrated corn? Yeah, look, my biggest issue with that show is that they pick one hazard to obsess over and prepare for, which like is fine, but it's usually not the hazard that they're most at risk for. Mm. There was one episode many years ago where they were preparing for like – an economic collapse or something, I think. And so they had all of this stuff stockpiled. They had like a million guns in their house. And I think they had like bars of gold or something. And then a wildfire happened and they had to evacuate their house on the show in the middle of the episode. And nothing like the things they had done to prepare were not useful in this situation. And that's why I'm a prepper. That's why I'm a prepper. And that's why I am a prepper. And so this is what I'm saying. Like, we need to take this broader view of preparedness, right? There are some things that will help you in multiple hazards, right? Like, having extra food and water in your house is, like, generally a good thing to do. That'll help you in any, like, situation in which you have to shelter in place. But to also kind of be thinking about how different different things are useful depending on what the situation is. A wheelbarrow full of gold ingots during a wildfire. So helpful. Just the worst. Um, Can I ask you questions from listeners? Sure. Okay. Okay, but before we get to patron questions, a few words about sponsors of the show. But before that, these sponsors make it possible to make a donation to a cause of the ologist's choosing. And this week, Dr. Samantha Montano chose the Bill Anderson Fund. And Bill Anderson was a scholar and a disaster specialist. And the Bill Anderson's Fund's mission statement reads, African-American and other minority representation in hazard and disaster mitigation is very important. Research has shown that racial and ethnic minorities often have increased difficulty evacuating prior to a crisis and are more likely to experience disproportionate physical and financial loss during disasters. Our focus now is on students who are already enrolled in graduate school. So a donation will go to the BillAndersonFund.org. And now some words about sponsors making that happen. Allergies with Allie Ward is sponsored by Claritin. So luckily, for those that live with the symptoms of allergies, you can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This is designed for serious allergy sufferers, and Claritin D has two powerful ingredients and just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. It's this double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available. Relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and 
sinus congestion, and pressure with ease. Just boom, down the hatch. You can get non-drowsy relief of allergy symptoms. And with Claritin D, you can still make the most of your day without compromise or looking like you've been crying. Are you ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Your pod mother, Jarrett, terrible allergies, and was recently shooting an indie movie that was filming in a house that had seven cats. Guess who's allergic to cats? Him. So yeah, we always have Claritin in like each of our cars. Essentially, Claritin D is the third in our relationship. It's fast and powerful relief. It's just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you are not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And y'all know I have a little dog named Grammy, which is short for Gremlin. And y'all help me name her. And there's nothing that we like more than seeing her happy, which means tasty dog foods. And Merrick has been crafting high quality dog food for over 30 years. They were founded in Hereford, Texas, but Grammy doesn't care about that. She cares about smushing her face in it and then licking the bowl. And I don't blame her because they use real ingredients and home style recipes like real Texas beef and sweet potato or Grammy's pot pie. Grammy's like Grammy's pot pie. Get away from it, it's mine. I also like that on the bag, they show what's in it. And they always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. And I think Grammy appreciates that. So check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Yum, 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 yum. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids 
Kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Okay, your disaster questions. Anna Thompson wants to know, who establishes what is a disaster, what is just bad? <laughs> uh, so this ties back into the presidential disaster declarations. So um, in the U.S., if an event has that disaster declaration, then we consider it a disaster. That's, like, problematic in a few ways that are pretty obvious. What if someone's like, whew, this is a real disaster, and you're like, not yet. It's not official yet. You have to wait before you can call that? Well, I mean, I might tell them that on Twitter, yeah. but... <laughs> it's like announcing a pregnancy. You're yeah. like, not until we get the flyover. Question. So how does the president declare something a disaster? Okay, well, the government of the state or the Indian tribal government has to request that something be declared an emergency or disaster and that it's exceeded their resources. They're like, this is above our pay grade, dude. And according to FEMA.gov, the president can declare a major disaster for any natural event, including any hurricane, tornado, storm, high water, wind-driven water, tidal wave, tsunami, earthquake, volcanic eruption, landslide, mudslide, snowstorm, or drought, or regardless of cause, fire, flood, or explosion that the president determines has caused damage of such severity that it is beyond the combined capabilities of state and local governments to respond. So I guess this is where the presidential helicopter tour comes in. And he's like, oh yeah, whew, this sucks. Now, the next question was also asked by Lacey Gilbert and Steve Kowalczak. Anna Thompson also asked, who determines the levels for things like 100-year floods or 100-year storms? How are people going about reclassifying them since they're happening more frequently? Yeah, so this is a huge, huge, huge problem. Um, not only in the U.S., it, Canada is going through it too right now, other countries as well. Um, so the way – I'm like going to simplify this, but the way that we usually talk about like 100-year floodplains has been based – uh, on like historical records and um, based on whatever that community looked like at the time that they drew the flood maps for that community. Of course, communities are constantly changing. Anytime you go cut down a bunch of trees and put pavement down, you have changed the flood risk in that area. And in the past, our maps haven't accounted for those changes. Um, this is all like very complicated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is a problem, one, because people may not know that they are in a flood or they may not know what their flood risk is. Um, it has implications for flood insurance and who needs to be covered by flood insurance. It influences all of the like flood infrastructure that we build in a community. This is 
complicated to do across the entire country with everything changing all the time. And then you add climate change to it, which is changing the actual hazards. Um, and you just like get this big mess. And so currently FEMA has a flood mapping program connected to the National Flood Insurance Program. They are constantly making changes, but it's kind of like an evolving policy nightmare mm. all the time. Yeah. And now are they going to have to go up in category numbers for hurricanes at all? You're going to have to talk to the meteorologists about okay. that. <laughs> I will. I haven't done meteorology yet. Yeah. Don't mind if I do. Um, Mary Rose B., first-time question asker, asked, how has social media changed disasters? Okay, this social media question was also asked by Sydney Brown and Isabel B. Holper. You know, she's thinking about things like fa- the Facebook option to mark yourself safe when there's a flood, or how has increased communication helped or hindered it? Yeah, so generally they are helpful. Um, they do a lot of things like help us uh, send out warnings, uh, help communicate and keep people more up to date in terms of like official responses. Um, but It's also useful to be able to um, have all of your neighbors on Facebook and to have a Facebook group about your neighborhood. If you're evacuated from your house, as people are, you know, finding out information here and there, you have a place to kind of share all of that information. Uh, So they're also useful in that way. When you get into the recovery, every community that has a disaster at this point has some kind of like Facebook group where people are sharing resources and talking about the recovery. It's useful for being able to gather donations. It's helpful in terms of people being able to see the damage and like kind of wrap their heads around what has happened. So it's useful in all these different ways. Search and rescue, also really useful. There are a lot of documented cases of people posting online saying, I need a rescue. My like phone won't dial out, but I can post here. There are obviously issues in terms of barriers, in terms of who has access to social media. Of course, your phone needs to be charged and like working Mm -hmm. in the midst of a disaster for it to be useful. Um, But generally, I would say they're a positive contribution. Rachel wants to know, how would we recover from nuclear fallout. So that's a pretty simple, easy question. (laughs) I would move to another country. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm kidding. Is there a real answer to this? Well, first of all, you I mean, there's like the contamination zone, which then you just leave. Um, yes. But past that, I mean, you would have to – basically, you're dealing with like internally displaced people situation then. So you're finding new places for people to live. And then past that, the recovery actually looks like pretty similar to as it would from any other disaster where you have to completely leave and start over. Right. I mean, I think abandonment is pretty much the yeah. the name of the game, right? Yeah. Micah Eckert asks, when disasters happen, what is the most helpful thing that people can do in general? Donate money to local organizations. Cindy Brown wants to know, what is the cost of disaster relief, and how long does it actually take communities to rebound? It is a lot of money, and it takes a very long time. Uh, It depends on the disaster, um, but... uh, I think in the past couple years, the U.S. has had 
$13 billion disasters a year. You might need to fact check me on that number. Fact check this, and it was 14. Very close. 14 different billion dollar plus disasters in 2018, killing at least 247 people and costing upwards of $90 billion. Hurricane Michael did about $25 billion in damages. Hurricane Florence was just under that at $24 billion. And the California wildfires were also over $20 billion. So a chorus of experts and scientists have warned that these type of disasters are climate-related. So unless things change with regard to global warming, the government will keep having to write these checks. And then that's just government. Businesses also donate money. There's nonprofits that are involved. Individuals are sending donations, foundations, et cetera. So um, there's a lot of money flying around, and we actually don't do a super great job of keeping track of all of that money. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's difficult to to keep track of all the different sources. Um, and in terms of the length of recovery, it, again, depends on the resources you have access to and kind of how bad the damage that you've experienced is. So somebody who has a lot of money and a lot of resources can probably get through recovery somewhat quickly, whereas somebody who's, you know, living paycheck to paycheck kind of gets thrown into this recovery system to get a little bit of aid from government, to get some support from nonprofits. They're reliant on their friends and families to help. You get really sucked into this cycle that can take many years if, you know, you ever get through it. There's no guarantee that you're going to recover from a disaster when it happens. A whole grip of folks asked this next question, and they are Sydney Brown, Danny Q, Ray Kasha, Deli Dames, Savannah Prokop, Michelle Grandine, and Anna Elizabeth. And um, a ton of people asked, what is the biggest disaster that scientists are anticipating? I mean, is it people running out of water? Is it super volcanoes, tectonic shifts, climate change, earthquakes, floods? Like all of the above. All of the above. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing more fires. We're seeing more hurricanes, more flooding. So obviously a drier climate and a wetter climate, depending on where you're at. Yes. So all of it. Yes. Just a marching headway to the apocalypse. It's great. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see. JSB says, I have seen various articles listing the U.S. states least likely statistically to suffer a natural disaster. Do you think these have any basis in actual fact? And should I move to Ohio? (laughs) Um, Usually those types of maps are based off of which states have had presidential disaster declarations. Mm. Um, So that's where they're getting those from, um, usually. Uh, So, yeah, sure, some states tend to have fewer disasters or less severe disasters than others. But again, changing climate, still Mm -hmm. some are are safer than others. And uh, Elizabeth Gable said, essentially, are there more disasters now? Or does it just seem like there are more disasters because we hear about them more? No, there are more disasters because there are more people to be in harm's way. Oh, that does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. We got a bunch of prepper questions from Savannah Prokop, Kitty Halverson, Sydney B., Brendan Dean, Claire Meyer, Ashley, Theodore Vissian, Jay, Sarah Loquist, first time question asker, as well as another firster. JSP wants to know, what are the skills that would be most useful in the aftermath of a disaster? 
and uh, says, I'm skeptical of preppers with collections of guns and gold, <laughs> but it would, would it be useful to know how to can food or sew or something? If it's like the apocalypse, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, no, I mean, generally in the United States, um, the most useful thing is to have a savings account with a lot of money in it mm. um, or a really good insurance policy. Pass that, like other skills to have. I mean, if your house is destroyed, having some kind of construction experience is useful. Mm. So maybe fewer guns, more hammers. Yeah. Learn to, learn to cook a squirrel. <laughs> Uh, Elizabeth Holper and a few other people, including Stephen Garrison, asked, is AM radio still a good source to get information during a disaster if a cell phone tower fails? And where's ham radio during all this? Is anyone using ham radio? Yes. Really? <laughs> yes. Um, yes, those are good sources of information mm -hmm. if you have access to those type of radios. Okay, side note. There's a rumor that Paris Hilton is really into ham radio and has a whole room full of vintage equipment. And even if this rumor is fake news, I want you to know that I would read fan fiction about it. That's hot. Also, this next question is from someone you know, but also from Sarah Terry, Cannon Purdy, Heather Shaver, Mae Merrill, Lily Hill, and first-time question asker Liz Powell. Um, side note, question from me. How uh, screwed are we with the big one in California? Or do you guys out here even, like, check it? Like, when it happens, it happens? Or are we, like, TikTok, it's happening? I mean, I can't predict earthquakes. But, yes, it is something to be aware of and pay attention to. Okay. Also, New Madrid, though. What is that? New Madrid? Oh, no, what's that? There's a fault line in the middle of the country. Where is it? It goes through St. Louis. Okie dokie. So, okay. Yeah, Google that if you need something else to worry about. Oh, I will. Y'all, I checked this out. And yes, in 1811 and 12, there was a 7.9 earthquake followed by a 7.4 aftershock. Those are huge. St. Louis, floods and earthquakes and tornadoes. Man, it's a good thing y'all have toasted raviolis because that is some shit to deal with. Speaking of twisters. Um, Lily Hill wants to know, is there something we can do to prepare for tornadoes? I lived in an earthquake zone when I was little. We stockpiled water, food, batteries in case there was an earthquake. But now living in Tornado Alley as an adult, we don't do that, mostly just because a tornado would likely just suck up anything we stockpiled and redistribute it to another town. So is there a way to prep? Yes, definitely. Um, if you can have a tornado shelter put in, that would be the best thing to do. Depending on, like, where you live, sometimes there are, like, community shelters. Like, uh, trailer parks will sometimes have, like, a, like, a community tornado shelter. Or you can have one in your house. Also, making sure that you are tied into your community's warning system. So, varies a little bit, but make sure you go onto like your city's website and usually there's some kind of like sign up for whatever their alert system is. And also just be aware if your town has tornado sirens, like know to listen for those things. Like we do a monthly drill in Fargo. Um, so people are like familiar with what it sounds like. Chris Brewer wants to know, not really question, but I would like it if she could speak about how severe PTSD can be in a survivor after experiencing a disaster. Do you see as part of people's recovery is dealing with the just the 
post-traumatic stress of it? Yeah. So when we talk about recovery, we're including everything from like physical recovery, economic recovery to mental health recovery as well. Again, it's going to vary. This is like one thing that we're becoming more cognizant of in the recovery process is accounting for mental health care throughout the event. This next question about asteroids was asked by Tyler Q and just Tyler Q. So I was mistaken. So Tyler Q, here you go. Some people are asking about asteroids. We're screwed, man. That's that. We're dinosaurs, man. Lacey Gilbert wants to know, how advanced are we in predicting natural disasters? It depends on the hazard. Um, We're doing pretty well in terms of hurricanes, for example. Mm -hmm. If you compare now to the 1900s, we have come a very, very long way. It's one of the reasons that we've seen a decline in hurricane-related deaths in the United States, with a few exceptions. But then other uh, hazards are more set and onset and are harder. Obviously, earthquake prediction is like a point of great focus in trying to figure that out. Seismologist Dr. Lucy Jones, if you're out there, please talk to me. Um, John Stroman asks, how organized are response efforts in times of crises? Sometimes it seems like everything is a well-oiled machine with multiple organizations working in tandem to fix broken lives. Other times it seems like a fully autonomous disaster in itself. So why is the management of a disaster also a disaster? That is a great assessment. Uh, Part of what people are kind of seeing when they see that discrepancy is the difference between an emergency disaster and catastrophe. And once we get large-scale disasters into catastrophes, that's where everything is just, it seems like a shit show, Mm -hmm. um, particularly from the outside. And that's like part of what is making it a large-scale disaster or catastrophe. Mm -hmm. It it seems to me a lot of times when I see um, the aftermath of a disaster, it seems like water is one of the most critical things to be distributing. Is it difficult to truck in tons of pallets of bottles of water? Are there better ways to do that, like filling stations or... I don't know this is a super dumb question. I might totally cut it out. But it always just seems like, how are they going to get all those bottles of water to people? And is there enough water? Sure, sure. I hate to keep saying this, but it depends on the situation. So um, here's one way to think about this. So I talked before about convergence and how all these people come from the outside. In addition to people, there's also materials coming in from the outside, all different kinds of supplies. Some of those materials are like requested and planned for, right? So you'll have trucks coming in with water that someone somewhere has requested and they're coming in to some kind of distribution point. That like generally is good and okay, fine, great. The problem starts to become when you have unrequested donations flooding into the community that's been through a disaster. Mm -hmm. So when people go to their closet and just, like, pull out any old clothes that they don't want, and they, like, if you're in North Dakota and I go to the store and buy cases of water and put them on a truck to Texas, like, that is not effective. That is not helpful. Um, and so it's those unrequested donations that then like get to that community and then they sit in a warehouse and are never distributed or, you know, it takes the community's resources to organize and donate or organize and distribute those donations. That's where things become much more complicated. I mean, I 
ideally after a disaster, you just like get the community's water system back up and mm-hmm. running as quickly as possible. Speaking of which, is Flint considered a disaster at this point or no? Uh, I would call it an environmental crisis, but that's like kind of a weird academic distinction that like maybe isn't that important for the actual situation. It's like definitely still within the realm of what I think about or would research. Yeah, it's so bad. Yeah, and then watching just $100 million from like Chanel go to fix a church is like, oh my God, oh my God. It's wild. Yeah. Um, Last questions I always ask. I mean, I feel like this is absolutely the stupidest question to ask the smartest person given the topic, but what's the thing you like the least about disasters? (laughs) Like everything. I don't know. Um, Honestly, it's watching the same problems just happen again and again. Like we know what the problems are and like we know what's causing disasters and we're just not, we could, we could like stop most disasters from happening Mm -hmm. and we don't. Yeah. What top problems would you identify? That are contributing to Like it? if you could wave a magic wand oh. and fix those problems. Okay. With a magic wand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I Mostly I would change like where people are living, right? Move them into less vulnerable areas to like wave a magic wand and just fund all of the mitigation projects that local communities want to do, right? Like People know their communities best. Like, they're the ones who know what their communities need to be safe. And there are communities all across the country that have a plan written out. Like, they've done the research of what project needs to happen in their community to make them more resilient or to make them more ready to handle a disaster, prevent a disaster from happening. And very often the barrier is that they do not have the funding for it or there's not political support for it. And so I think just like funding all of those projects would be great. Mm. Just bring, bring, (laughs) insert chimes here, magic wands. Um, Your favorite thing about your work? I think being able to, like, have a platform to amplify the voices of survivors and to amplify those communities that don't get that media attention, even just acknowledge, I think, sometimes that, yes, I see what you're going through. This is a disaster. You're absolutely right. More people should be paying attention. Being able to, like, understand what they're experiencing, I think is probably my favorite part. Did you ever think that you would be the world's foremost disasterologist? (laughs) Well, I'm not the world's foremost disasterologist, probably, but... I mean, I don't know of a lot of other people. (laughs) You got the domain name, so... (laughs) Well, that's true. (laughs) Pierce the Veil's got nothing on (laughs) you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, in terms of disasterology as a discipline and a disasterologist, it's like... Call up Dr. Sam. (laughs) You're the one. (laughs) I'm just the loudest on Twitter. Well, that's good. More air horns and bullhorns. You're doing doing great work. Thank you so much for letting me pepper you with stupid questions. (laughs) Thanks for coming all the way to Fargo. I get to check off North Dakota on my list. (laughs) I'm glad there are no tornadoes while we were here, though. Yikes. So travel far and wide if need be and ask the foremost, smartest people your 
deepest down stupid questions because we're all going to die one day. Now, to learn more about Dr. Montano, head to her website at disaster-ology.com. On Twitter, she is Sam L. Montano, and her bio says, I'm not a regular disasterologist. I'm a cool disasterologist. And that's very true, and I love her for it. Okay, so we are at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Allie Ward with one L on both. Uh, more links and attributions are always up at AllieWard.com slash Ologies. Uh, there's a link to the episode page and the social media pages and the sponsor pages up in the show notes always. Thank you to Aaron Talbert and Hannah Lippo for adminning the Facebook Ologies podcast group full of very kind wonderfuls. Also, hello to the Reddit subreddit group. I don't know how Reddit works, but I hear y'all are assembling there. Hi. Feel free to hit up ologiesmerch.com, including brand new Check Your Crevices shirts and mugs and some hey and bye-bye shirts that are just up at ologiesmerch.com. Thank you, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch of the comedy podcast. You are that for all the merch help. You're both wonderful. Thank you to assistant editor Jarrett Sleeper of the podcast My Good Bad Brain for assistant editing. Jarrett just put out an amazing episode with traumatologist Dr. Nicholas Barr. Uh, examining mental illness and mass shootings in case you like the debunking of flim flam. Um, so go check that out. And thank you to my own emergency manager, editor Stephen Ray Morris, who helps me cobble these together every week and get them up as on time as possible for a couple of people with 10 jobs. He also hosts the Purrcast about kitties and See Jurassic Right, which is about dinosaurs. The theme song for Ologies was written by Nick Thorburn of the band Islands. They are so good. Also, happy belated birthday to my wonderful sister, Sauce, aka Celeste, and to Bonnie Dutch. I am so happy you both are on planet Earth. And happy birthday to my wonderful pal, Lizette, who has been a friend since sixth grade and is the best. Um, if you stick around until the end of the episode, you know I tell you a secret. And this week, the secret is that I'm in a hotel room in San Jose. I could not get the air conditioning to stop blasting on me. Maybe I'm tired. Maybe it's day two of a no sugar diet, but I wanted to cry. And then I unplugged the entire air conditioning and it stopped. And I let out a Howard Dean noise like, yar! And I'm just riding that high still, even though it's been hours. So if you've ever given up sugar or cut carbs because of reactive hypoglycemia, please come at me because I think this sucks at first, but please tell me that it gets easier. Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 